Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, episode number 78. And we're getting up there. We're getting old. And we are getting old. I'm I'm super old. <laughs> you're feeling super old. I'm feeling very old. But you're looking young, let me tell you. Thank you. So in today's episode, Tim is going to talk about beauty, and we all kind of talk about beauty, but it's about beauty and standards of beauty and things like that. So you can enjoy that after that thing we always do, which leads me to my next comment. We have some Thinklings business to tend to. Books and business. Let's talk about some books. Let's. T- I'm sorry. That, yeah, let's talk about some <laughs> Charlie, books, Tim. Charlie's all out of sorts. What's going on? Uh, so I've been reading- Back-to-back committee meetings. That's what, that is that's what does it right there. That's exactly what does it. <laughs> I've, I've been reading to my children The Tales of Old Natalia, uh, which is part of the Green Ember series. We're currently reading Prince Lander and the Dragon War. Uh, this is the third one. It just came out like a month ago. Uh, I just thought I was reading to them and I came to this one spot and uh, and there were two points I was going to highlight. Uh, the first is how he, how S.D. Smith uses naming in his literature, the group of people who um, who rebelled against the king. Uh, he calls them oath breakers, which I thought was uh, a very fitting description of them because they did break oath. And uh, in our culture, which is a culture, I would call it of oath breakers, it's almost like he's kind of highlighting uh, uh, this idea of loyalty and faithfulness, which is required of people. Um, so that was one thing. He calls them oath breakers, the, the people who rebelled. And then um, he also even gets into, uh, I think, a little bit of the theology of emotion. In, on pages 20 and 21, one of the king's sons, his name is Grant, uh, he is rather impetuous. And uh, Grant, I'm going to just read this a little bit, Grant winced. Forgive me, father. I feel I am always about to let you down with my foolishness. And then the king, his father, replied, You feel, Grant, Whitson said, and that is your great strength and weakness. Feeling, listen to this, and, and you guys, I wouldn't mind your input on this. Feeling without thought is wild, but thought without feeling is not alive. Keep being alive, son. Ooh. So feeling without thought is wild. What is that? It's the, it's the, it's the trousered ape. It's the trousered this ape. This is abolition. Sorry, yeah. I took it out of Charlie's mouth. I know that's, he was ready to say it. I was thinking it. I wasn't ready to speak. I'm looking at Facebook. And then thought, <laughs> you're horrendous. I'm sorry. Thought without feeling is not alive. I mean, thought without feeling yeah. is not alive. Yeah, it's like the person That's who, an urban blockhead, I yeah. think. Okay, so, so this is one of the things I really like about um, some of these fiction writers. They are really grounded in a theology of emotion and, and even um, shaping of the affections. Uh, and S.D. Smith, through the interchange of these characters, is basically teaching a theology of emotion, a biblical theology of emotion and affection, and that this character, Grant, needs to learn um, how to have the proper 
affections. And this father is not reacting to the two extremes, which is so common as parents, uh, about killing the emotion uh, or letting it run wild, uh, but actually shaping the affection. So it provided, it provided a, a conversation uh, with my children, and I thought that would just be worth sharing. And I do recommend uh, this series, and I like this author, S.D. Smith, currently reading through Prince Lander and the Dragon War. I don't know how it ends. Uh, we're on page like 100. I'll probably finish it with them this week. That's my books and business. Yeah, I'll go next. So I do have a couple of books that I'm almost finished with, but uh, I'm probably just going to reserve them for the summer out in uh, left field as we defined so last excited. summer. I'm so excited about your life. Um, I got a, have I talked about these yet? The ones that I'm reading? No, I saw a stack on your desk a couple weeks ago. So I've got a suspicion about one of them. Yeah. Zom a zombie book. Yeah. Made it in okay. There. okay. Wow. That's left field. All right. That. Yeah, it is. It's, it has surprised me with how it has made me consider worldviews. Uh, like why are zombies uh, a problem? Like where did they come from? Like, are they evil or are they, I'm already talking about it, but uh, is there like an evil thing or is it just like a uncontrollable thing? Like, hmm. you know, like what, what's the source of the problem with the zombie? Is it like what they're doing to me or that it in of itself is evil? Like kind of like gives you like a interesting view of reality anyway. But so we'll talk more about that over the summer. Uh, there's another drama happening here at faith pride and prejudice, April 22nd. If you're free that afternoon or evening, there will be a show. And uh, I'm in that. And uh, that has been uh, a quite a large dent into my reading time is the memorization of lines and the practices. And there are <clears throat> dances. There are dances again. Oh, my. And, um, so I guess that's kind of my books and business. I've been really trying to hammer on that. And um, well, it's OK to dance. I mean, it talks about dancing in the Bible. Yeah, David dance. Exactly. Celebration before the Lord. That's what you're doing, right? Yeah. Praising the glory of God that and his great victory. Me, which weird, a weird. Listeners, that was a lot of sarcasm. <laughs> oh, a weird, uh, uh, like kind of link in my mind. But I did have someone who listens to our podcast reach out and ask about ways to interpret the song of songs. So like they had the, I think a study Bible with like four main interpretations. Yeah. And it was like, what do you think? And um, just. I'm saying this on air is like a way of accountability that we have to talk about that again. I feel like we should. Um, Cause obviously we, we kind of joke about the allegorical mm -hmm. Christ in the church interpretation, but maybe having you Tim walk mm -hmm. through those would be yeah. helpful. Oh, yeah. But um, anyway, so uh, I, I told my little uh, group of friends in the play that I would uh, give a shout out to them. This is a shout out to them. And uh, so um, yeah. Uh, interesting with Pride and Prejudice, like Doug Wilson has a list of like books he considers canonical, like classics, things like 50 books everyone should read. And uh, of the more modern options on those lists, like Lord of the Rings makes it as probably, I think that's probably the most modern is Lord of the Rings by, by date of publication. But he does have Pride and Prejudice on there as a book that everyone should should read. And it's really interesting to think through how feminist is Jane Austen? Maybe that'll be a a um, podcast uh, episode name down the road because she's definitely she's definitely bucking status quo of like how relationships in high society England are supposed to happen. And you know, here's a 
first, like most people probably didn't even know how to read, but here's a really well-read woman who doesn't want to get married to a lot of guys because they won't make her happy. And eventually, you know, so there's like the underpinnings of like, you go single mom laying there. I think they're dormant. Um, but I don't think, so I don't think she's like full on feminist because what happens at the end of the book? Well, she still does marry the rich, cute guy. Um, Mr. Dark. Oh, no, no, no. I'm really disappointed. You just spoiled the whole story for me. It's been out for a it was published in 1813, so you know been, they've had 200 it, years to deal with it. That's quite a spoiler right there. It's been spoiled for quite a while. She does not marry the uh, pastorate of the Church of England, Mr. Collins. So anyway, um, yeah, so I've been working on that. Um, it is, it is, I would, I would say come to the drama if you want to and then watch it, but then read, read the book. And then, you know, we always talk about authorial intent and you think through what was Jane Austen's point? Like trying to think through what is the point that's being made. And I think it's a good, it's a good exercise in discernment that it's not just a rom-com. It's not meant to be light and funny. It's meant to be, uh, and she, she originally proposed the book for publication in 1793, which there's something else that really important happened a few decades before 1793 and I'll tie that to my statement. I think she was trying to be revolutionary. I think she was no, trying to be a trendsetter. Five years before that, there was a big old French thing going on. Uh, and I don't think people would be I, losing their heads. One, I don't think people. I don't think people in England around that time were super keen on new ideas. <laughs> and definitely not the monarchists. <laughs> and and so and so it was not published in 1793. She like completely reworked it. It was published in 1813. And so I think she part of her intent was to be like a a little jostle to the status quo. So anyway, I'd read it, think through authorial intent. It's not just about romance. So it is a thinky book. I think it exalts that a little bit. So especially since the main character is a is meant to be a thinker. So anyway, that's what that's my books in business today. Well, going back to Tim's book for just a moment, but even the Austin book. So Abolition of Man. We talked about that for a while back. Um so we, I was speaking at a church the last two weeks in town here, and afterwards we went out to eat with a family, and uh, shout out to Amy Parrott and, of Dave and Amy Parrott. She's a listener, and so she said that she read the Space Trilogy, and then she listened through our series on abolition, and then she read abolition. She said she really under, like she started to get it more, but it was interesting. Me and Dave were talking about all kinds of worldview stuff, CRT, all that stuff. And it is interesting to see where, like, I, I just don't think there's anywhere that abolition doesn't have something to say. It's crazy how influential that book has been long term. I think there's a reason for that. It's because all of the modern worldviews mm -hmm. are built on the premise that objective reality doesn't exist the yep. way we used to think yes. it does. Yeah. Used to think it does. It's close Used enough. to think it did. Eh, close enough. Words are hard. They are. I mean, we can't all be Jane Austen, you know, so. At least we're not professors. But so like that, that lack of objectivity yeah. is the foundation to all the deconstructed worldviews. Mm -hmm. So that, that's why it applies in so many arenas. Yeah. I just, I, anyways, just listener, I know this is not my books and business, but if you haven't read Evolution yet, get our series, get our three parts, get the book, read it, think about it, read this, read the Ransom Trilogy. It'll be a good time. All right. So for my books and business, I'm going to try to go fast, but. Uh, I'm going to talk about a podcast I finished. 
And I know we talk about it, our own podcast, but there was a major podcast that came out, put out by Christianity Today called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And it's the story of Mars Hill Church out in Seattle that was um, planted by Mark Driscoll. And then it rose to great megachurch prominence. And then I can't remember the byline or the tagline of the title, how like Mars Hill rose to prominence and then like died overnight or something like that. Yeah. The rise and fall. And so I guess I'll say this. It initially, when it came out, it was this big splash in the evangelical world and everyone's listening to it. So I listened along. I got into about episode six and I gave it up. So I'm just, I'm going to say this, maybe we'll come back to it on an episode and talk more about it. But part of what's going on is Christianity Today is the producer. And so you can imagine where that would take you from a political and uh, theological standpoint. Mike Cosper is the co or is the host and main editor and creative behind it. He does a really good job telling the story. He's a great storyteller. I would, I would say that I was, I was sucked in. I set it aside though, because the early episodes talk about some heavy sexual content. Uh, part of Mark Driscoll's teaching that he was known for was his view of sexuality in the book, real marriage. Um, and that's aside from the big controversy about how he got it to be on the bestseller list. But that's also talked about. So anyways, I just set it aside because it seemed like a lot of that. I had lunch with my old best friend from high school and he said, oh no, you got to keep going. Uh, they had Josh Harrison the next episode after you quit. And uh, so I picked it back up again about three weeks ago. And I will say the second half was very, very interesting. So I'm not going to rate it. I'm just going to say maybe two things, three things about it. Number one, I would say there's caution. A lot of it do, has to do with human sexuality. There's, they even make their own statement in like episode nine or whatever about if you have any abuse in your background or if you have small children listening, be advised you may not want them to listen to this episode. So, uh, listener, if this is something that interests you, I want you to use discernment and caution. Uh, secondly, it's interesting the theological position behind the podcast. So a lot of the early episodes talk about Mark Driscoll's view of masculinity. And his view of masculinity is kind of a punch first and maybe not even ask questions later. It's very argumentative, very fighty. And so there's like a couple of examples. Um, he sort of cultivated this angry fighting spirit in his church. Uh, one of the deacons went out one night. He was really ticked off because these kids were drag racing on his street. And so he goes out about like midnight. Gra he grabbed a can of bear spray just up in Washington. He got this car drives by. He chucks it really hard at the car, dents the car car goes like 50 more feet and stops and he freaks out, runs inside his house. And he says, I walked in my house and I realized that was the stupidest thing. I hear I'm a deacon. People on the street know I go to this church. I'm trying to be a gospel witness. And I just, this very unbiblical thing. So the next day he tells Mark about it. He says, Mark, I got to confess some sin. Last night I just behaved in a really undeacon way. Um, these kids were street racing and I went out and I threw a can of bear spray at them and dented their car. And, uh, I, they haven't come back. I don't know what's going to happen. I live in a rough part of town and Mark pauses and thinks about it for a moment. And he had fired people for less at this point in his ministry, but this guy was like one of his favored peeps. And he said, I'm not going to say beep, but he said, beep it. Those guys are, and I can't say it's like an effeminate term for these guys. They're not coming back. And he gave him a pass. And it's really interesting. They document this and this comes to my second point is at first I didn't know, is this church history or is this gossip? It was a weird, weird thing listening to it. At times it felt very historically 
minded. So like I'm a historical theology major. I enjoy that stuff, like looking at movements and analyzing it. But there are other times it did have a little bit of a gossipy feel with some of the guests who came on and were airing out their thoughts. Now, I do think there's a place to publicly analyze this because they were so big. So um, the last thing I probably say is that the theological perspective Early on, they talk about complementarianism, and then they talk about Driscoll's view of masculinity, and they tie those things together. And so I would say 1 Timothy 3 is all we need to say you can't be a brawler if you're a pastor. And there's all kinds of turn-the-other-cheek comments in the New Testament. But they sort of latch on to Driscoll's version of masculinity and then say this is, it's almost, they don't say this, but it's almost like they paint complementarianism as the problem. And I would say that's a false equivalence, but I'm not surprised because this is Christianity today. Mike Cosper is a former megachurch pastor who left, sounded like he got hurt in the process. And personally, I want to watch Cosper in the next five to 10 years. I'd, I'd like to see where he theologically lands. Um, at the very end, they talked about this quest church that took over Mars's campus in one of these places in Seattle. And he said, this church has picked up what Mars Hill was doing and carried it forward, granted from a theologically more progressive perspective but they're doing the work of, and he sort of talked about it in an okay way. Uh, Quest Church, when I looked them up, they're openly egalitarian in all their positions, and they're openly affirming of LGBT lifestyles, at, and they, they explicitly say at every level, parentheses, including pastorate. So to me, if I'm an editor, I'm going to speak a certain way about that on my podcast, and he didn't. So I'm just, I got some suspicions. That's all I would say. So overall, I would like to see if, like, like if you took all this data, this research, I'd like to give it to, like, what would it have been like if, if like someone like John MacArthur had the data and then produced a podcast, what would the viewpoint and analysis look like? Or like a Vody Bauckham, or I can't even think of like someone like us. Like, I'd be really curious, give that data to someone else and then let them analyze it. And I'd like to see the two podcasts side by side. So that's my books and business. And maybe we'll come back and talk about it in the future. Doug Wilson, Doug Wilson, let him yeah, analyze Wilson it. would be fascinating because he, I think he tried to help Driscoll at points. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so we're going to talk about beauty. Uh, I want when we're talking about beauty, we are talking about external beauty, not internal beauty. Internal beauty is more important. Internal beauty refers to virtue. And, uh, but how do we handle like this external appearance of people and the external beauty that's around us? Uh, the common maxim is beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, this statement, I'm going to talk about it and um, basically argue that it's an unbiblical concept. Beauty is something that is objective. Tastes are subjective, but beauty is objective. And we're going to go through several Bible passages uh, to argue that point. So um, I, at the end of the podcast, I'm going to discuss how beauty is, is not important, uh, but at the same time, beauty is important. And that's kind of how we framed this discussion. I hope you find it helpful. Let's have a conversation about beauty. So this is kind of a controversial topic. Um, I would encourage you to study this out further. There's a book written uh, by Roger Scruton, Beauty, A Very Short Introduction. It's a short book, only a little over 100 pages. You probably want to read it about three times. But um, he basically gives you a little bit of the history and then a little bit of uh, the, the philosophical debate. When we talk about beauty, we are entering into a philosophical discussion. 
And I hope to kind of introduce you a little bit to that philosophical component, but really what I want to talk about is what the Bible has to say about beauty. Uh, beauty is a very uh, important industry in our culture. A lot of money is spent on beauty. The, new, the King James Version translates uh, Proverbs 31.30 that beauty is vain. But many people, depending on your definition of vain, would say that beauty is not vain. It's actually rather powerful. In fact, we see the power of beauty throughout the scriptures, particularly the wisdom literature as well. So uh, when we think about beauty and we think of uh, what draws us to specific things, so uh, why do we... Why are we drawn to beauty? Uh, those are good questions to ask. Those are good questions to, to think about. Why is it that you want to look at that? And then if you're drawn to something specific, uh, for some reason, even if you may not be able to define it, um, what is up with this modern maxim, uh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder? When I first taught the Song of Songs, I worked through Song of Songs chapter 1, 4, and 6, and explained basically that beauty was in the eye of the beholder. I've since changed my view. I don't believe that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I believe beauty is actually objective. There are specific characteristics of, of uh, beauty that transcend cultures. You can compare different cultures, and they all identify specific things. Because when we enter into the conversation of beauty, this is like the philosophical component again. I'll get to the Bible in a moment. Um, uh, there's uh, something within natural revelation, general revelation, that even people who may reject Jesus as their Savior would say, oh, this is beautiful, or that is beautiful. Uh, so a lot of people in, in the world, and even Christians, would say beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but in life, they really don't live that way. They're drawn to specific things for specific reasons. We need to think through, then, what is beauty? Now, first, I want to do want to just uh, refine the question. What are we specifically talking about here? We use the word beauty to refer to somebody's character, their virtue. And we will go to, say, 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to go ahead and read it. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart and the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. And we see this phrase thrown around a lot in our Christian culture as well. Well, you're beautiful on the inside. Well, that's great, and that's uh, something that's really important. You need to be beautiful on the inside, which is really just a metaphor. Beauty re refers to order, symmetry. And somebody that's beautiful on the inside, guess what their virtues, their affections are? They're ordered. They're ordered correctly. And so I don't have a problem uh, saying and uh, referring to beauty in this metaphorical way, but the metaphorical meaning of beauty, beautiful on the inside, is built upon a physical ordering, a physical de definition of beauty. So Let's look at uh, scripture, and we're going to focus not on this internal ordering, this internal beauty. Our conversation is going to be external beauty. And we're going to learn uh, and see what even the Song of Songs has to teach us about external beauty. The Song of Songs is the book of the Bible that talks about beauty the most. 
I, and, uh, you know, if you're a little uncomfortable, oh, is this going to be an explicit podcast or something? No, it's not, not at all. Okay. So, uh, in fact, I think this is a very liberating concept. If you are, um, single, if you're a single young lady, uh, if you're a single young man, or if you're married, thinking through, uh, what, what beauty is, uh, can, I think be very liberating and help you to enjoy God's good gifts. So Song of Songs, chapter one, verses five and six, and we're going to read those. I am dark, but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Gadar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. So this woman uh, speaks and she states, I am dark. And the word there for dark is not really dark. It's literally black. She states, I am black but lovely. And some commentators, because of the statement, believe that the, the woman is of uh, African uh, descent and that she is black. Uh, but that's not the case because in verse 6, she explains the source of her blackness. Do not look upon me because I am black, because the sun has tanned me. You see, she's not really black, but she's been outside in the sun a lot. And being outside in the sun has darkened her complexion. Uh, this is, our culture kind of values the dark skin, but most cultures, and even still today, some cultures like China, uh, they still value a, a, the lighter skin because it is a statement of wealth, of prosperity. The poorer classes have to be outside and work. The fairer individuals are not outside, they're inside, outside of the sun, and thus they have a fair complexion. The woman here in Song 1, 5, and 6 is not happy about the way that she looks. In fact, she states she's been a keeper of the vineyards. She has had to be outside where her beauty has marred her. And, and, uh, and as a result, she states in the next line, my own vineyard, okay, so she turns the meta turns from talking from a literal vineyard to a metaphorical vineyard her body she's not been able to keep it she's not been able to attend to it so she does not look beautiful this is a common issue not only today but in days gone past where women would be discontent with their beauty and furthermore they would exaggerate per perceived imperfections the woman here states that she's black but she's not black she's dark and uh, so the song then resolves this. And in verses 5 through 11, which we're going to look at in a little bit, um, uh, give some advice on how to work through um, flaws or perceived flaws and uh, to think through beauty biblically. But before we do that, I want to uh, just first work on a definition of beauty. What is beautiful? Okay, what is beautiful? Actually, let me read one verse first. Song of Songs 1.8. I want you to, uh, I need to put this into context. The man speaks in Song 1.8. If you do not know, O fairest, O most beautiful among women. Okay, so this is fascinating that this guy, even though she's looking at herself and seeing all these flaws, what does he say? You are beautiful. So there's a tension there, and we're going to talk about that. So let's talk about beauty. Uh, the word beauty occurs several times in the Bible. In fact, specific people are called beautiful. And I'm going to throw this at you guys. So who in the Bible is described as beautiful? 
are we playing a game like he names one, I name one? Ooh, I like this. Okay. You want to go first? Sure. Okay. Sarah, Sarah was very beautiful. Sarah? Abraham's wife. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so Sarah is described as being very beautiful. In fact, that kind of created some problems with uh, yeah. some powerful men. And the, I think the word is actually used, right? Beautiful. Yes. Okay. She is described as beautiful. There's a Hebrew word that talks about beauty, and she is described with that Hebrew word, Collins. beauty. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's the Greek word. Septuagint. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Rachel? Yeah, so Rachel is actually considered extremely beautiful. She's beautiful of form and appearance. And this is in contrast to her sister, Leah. Now that gives us something to think about too, that even in that culture, those cultures, some were perceived as more beautiful than others. And so thinking through, well, beauty is kind of on maybe a spectrum it's not like some people have it, some people don't. Maybe some people have it more than other people. So that's something to think about when it comes to building a biblical theology of beauty. Okay, any others? Yes. The feet of those who bring good news. They have pretty feet. <laughs> that's all I got. I got no more beautiful people. Oh, I've got more. <laughs> oh man, let's hear it. We haven't mentioned any men yet. Oh, I'm, wow. Joseph is beautiful. That's right. He was like hard to resist. So the Hebrews, have we walked through this before? Maybe like three or four years ago. <laughs> so uh, the Hebrews didn't make a, they didn't have a different word. Like in English, we have different words for men and women. We don't call men beautiful. We call them handsome. The Hebrews did not have a different word. Wapo. The, the word, <laughs> horrendous. The word for beautiful, I uh, could refer to a man or a woman. And Joseph is described as being a beautiful man. David. And David is described mm. as being a beautiful man. Absalom. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, his hair. Um, He'd just die for his hair. <laughs> he dyed it, his hair. <laughs> isn't Moses called beautiful, too? Uh, the word beautiful Humble. is not used for him, Humble. but he is called good. Okay. Which is, this is where we want to be careful of not committing a word study fallacy. Other words besides Harold this Harold Honer, may he rest in peace. Other, other... <laughs> Other uh, words are used to describe beauty. In fact, you have God being referred to this beauty of holiness and this mm -hmm. glory. Those are all actually different words. The word that I've really focused the study on is the characteristic of the, uh, of the external appearance of this beauty. And it refers to men, it refers to specific men, specific women, and even specific livestock. So in Ooh. Genesis 41, wow. with the dream of Pharaoh, the cows come out of the river and they're called beautiful cows. Wow. I would not have put, well, number one, I, I was, wow. That's I all think I an interesting one too. Isn't um, one of the future leaders like in Ezekiel, as he's prophesying, as he's talking about someone who's really beautiful, right? I don't remember. I didn't. I mean, the words used like some 40 times, a bunch of them are in the Song of Songs. That makes sense. And I didn't... What I was, what I was going to say earlier was, I would find it hard to believe that Adam and Eve weren't beautiful, even though it's never explicitly said. God yeah. like looks at everything and it's good, <laughs> but it's not beautiful. I find it hard to believe that, you know, God just made the first two like really ugly. I would think that yeah, his whole creation <laughs> But they wouldn't design. have cared maybe as much because they weren't sinners yet, but then they were. 
That's, I'm done. Okay. <laughs> so this is, again, coming back to that word study fallacy and thinking so through the words good. Is good a description of beauty? Uh, so um, Saul is described of good appearance. This doesn't use the word beauty for him, but good appearance seems to denote that he had some appearance that was, well, goodly. And uh, the specific attribute that's mentioned with Saul is actually height. And so some have even considered, is there something about tallness that is attractive? Hmm. But that's not where I'm going to go with this one. Uh, we're going to, I do want us to think through though, that the scriptures specifically describe some people as beautiful and, and I wouldn't say ugly. I don't you like to use the word ugly. I think all of God's creatures are made in the image of God and reflect his glory to different degrees than others. So I like to think of beauty more as on a spectrum. Some people have more beauty than others. And to say that that's just not true and that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, I think is being uh, unfaithful to the descriptions in the scriptural text. For example, Rachel, the narrator states that Rachel was more beautiful than Leah. Uh, but understanding what beauty does and, and uh, what its objective characteristics are, uh, I think are helpful for us. So as we work through this, I hope you think through beauty more biblically and uh, find this uh, helpful. So when we think through a definition of beauty, we go to the Song of Songs, for example, Song of Songs 4-7. We have this statement, You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no blemish in you. And one aspect of beauty is flawlessness. We see this actually in the description of Absalom as well. In uh, first, no, Second Samuel 14, Absalom is described as being beautiful and, and he is flawless. There's an interesting theology here to develop, which I'm not going to take the time to do right now, but like Leviticus 21 and 22, and those who are permitted to go closer to God into the tabernacle, uh, severe blemishes or flaws, um, people with those were not uh, allowed to draw near to God. I'm just going to leave that one there and let you think about it. And uh, within this whole conversation, you might have a deformity or a flaw or a scar. Uh, just even thinking through, you know what, this is the way that you are, and it might be the way that God made you. You know, the Gospel of John, particularly John chapter 9, has something to say about that. And, um, and to not be discouraged, but to use and reflect the glory of God through the beauty that he's given you. And we'll get to some practical implications of this in a moment that I hope are encouraging. Now, some people just tend to have a lot of beauty, but there's one aspect of beauty that's going to hit all of us. What is the one aspect of beauty, regardless of how beautiful you are, that's going to touch you? Character? Well, that's uh, the... I'm talking extrinsically, not oh, extrinsically. Yeah. Wow. That, I don't know. I got nothing. Okay. So Proverbs 31.30. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is not vain, but passing. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. You see, a woman, uh, a female beauty, is very alluring to a man. And in Proverbs 31, the the woman of virtue, the woman of excellence here, uh, she is the one who fears the Lord. Too often young men base decisions uh, for 
uh, marriage or dating upon charm or beauty. But the description of beauty, and this is something for us to think through, is if we're going to develop a biblical theology of beauty, that beauty passes. It doesn't last. And so this is that one aspect of beauty that um, connects to every individual. You may be beautiful now. Well, just give it some time. It'll pass. <laughs> so you just said you hope this is encouraging. <laughs> then you said that. It is encouraging. It will be encouraging. <laughs> All right, well. And then connected to this, are old people beautiful? This is where all people reflect the image of God and possess beauty, um, but uh, beauty being a spectrum, and that some re people reflect that beauty more or at different times in their lives than at other times. The pinnacle of beauty is the days of one's youth. Okay, so Song 4, 1 through 7, uh, you have this, this uh, well, it's an inclusio on beauty. You have beauty at the beginning and you have beauty at the end. And I'm not going to go through all the characteristics of beauty just because of the sake of time here, but you have this idea of symmetry, cleanliness. Okay, this is going to get very practical because cleanliness is something that you have control over. And godliness is next to cleanliness, right? Okay? Right. So um, being clean and ordering the cosmos that God has entrusted to you is part of an individual's stewardship there. Part of their responsibility to take care of uh, the, uh, the things that God has given them. Uh, so symmetry, cleanliness, uh, and I would even make a case that you could say color. Uh, there's some other aspects of beauty through the song that I would love to take, uh, take you through, uh, but I think I'm just going to let it go there. Some of these are pretty uh, pervert. We have these perversions in our culture that have messed up uh, God's design for beauty, and I would just caution you. Many uh, of, the, of the things celebrated in our world have um, are corruptions of God's design for beauty. So base your idea of beauty upon Scripture. Uh, and the area that I'm specifically referring to would be the, the issue of, uh, of weight. Our culture celebrates this super skinny, which is really unhealthy. And God's definition of beauty would actually not line up with that. Okay, so now, if we have this definition of beauty, how important is it? And I want to just deal with beauty from an importance perspective. First, I want to say that beauty is not important. And you might be like, well, I just thought you said that it was important. Well, it just it states explicitly in 1 Peter 3 that let your adornment not be to the external, but to be to the internal. The central focus of an individual should be their heart, their affections, and that their loves are properly ordered. This is not just something in the, in the, uh, in the New Testament, it's in the Old Testament as well. In Proverbs 31.30, charm is deceitful and beauty is passing. Okay, the beauty that you possess is going to go away. It's interesting in Isaiah chapter 40, they, they use the illustration of how people, they, they die. And they use the illustration of a flower and how a flower blooms and it looks so beautiful, but then it dies really quickly. And then it uses the illustration of the grass, all right? And then the grass, what happens to it? Well, eventually it dies too when the winter comes. So a person's life is kind of like that. It blooms and looks so beautiful for that short period of time when you're young. And then it's like you have the grass and then, you know, it just 
withers up and dies and it goes away. Well, beauty is that way. It's not that important. What is more important is your internal character. In fact, how important really is beauty? Well, in Song of Songs chapter 1, we read those two verses, verses 5 and 6. It talks about this woman and how she is a vineyard keeper. Why a vineyard keeper? Why not a shepherdess? Why not a some other outside occupation? All right, I think it's, she's described as a vineyard keeper intentionally because there's another woman that's a vineyard keeper in the Bible. Do you guys know of another woman that is a vineyard keeper in the Bible? I know I'm putting you on the spot here, and you yeah. might not get this. No, uh, uh, is it is the the um, Ahaz wanted the vineyard? Um, no, it's that's not mentioned. Naboth. Doesn't mention a woman there. That's Naboth. Okay. Do you remember? He doesn't have it. It's okay. Yeah, I've oh. got no idea. My, so your first your first <laughs> reference is in keeper. the song, right? Yeah. So song one six, the woman is a vineyard keeper. She's been tending vineyards, so she, her own vineyard she's not kept. So my my inclination is that it's probably in Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. <laughs> Just because I'm a wisdom guy and everything's there. Am I correct? It's Proverbs thirty one. Yes. Okay. That's what I was. Ah. Oh, because she owns a vineyard. Yes, yes. Oh, the virtuous woman, the excellent I woman. That. I wasn't confident, but I did know that. Yes. yes. Okay, so the excellent... Let the record show. <laughs> <laughs> the excellent woman, okay, the excellent wife here, what does she do? She considers a field and buys it, and from her profits, she plants a vineyard. She's like working outside in the vineyard. Well, what is that going to do to her vineyard, the vineyard of her body? We have such an overemphasis on external beauty in our culture that... Uh, a woman of virtue that's actually physically working, whose beauty is marred because of her working, uh, she's overlooked and a guy doesn't even consider her because, well, why? I'll just maybe leave that one there. Okay, maybe there's some disordered character uh, in the young man. So this, uh, this woman, she works. She works outside. In fact, this woman in the Song of Songs that's working outside, she exemplifies the excellent wife. She is the one that's working outside where her beauty can be and will be marred. Um, working, uh, I think of the story of Ruth. Ruth is outside working with the, the stalks of grain and to think through what that does to an individual's uh, body after a while in sustained use with the building up of calluses on the hands, uh, the, the leathering of the skin, especially in their culture. Um, and so beauty, we need to understand, is really not that important. Uh, the virtuous woman, the excellent wife of Proverbs 31, was a woman who worked. Uh, and this is a good thing. This is, uh, this is uh, <laughs> metaphorically beautiful. Now, let's talk about how beauty, though, is important. Because some people, they've just emphasized this point, oh, beauty's not really that important. Okay, internal character is important. Beauty's not really that important. But within the uh, Old Testament and within the Song of Songs, there's this elevation of beauty. It's beauty is that, that is something that is celebrated, that is enjoyed. Even in the Song of Songs, we had this woman whose husband says that she's the most beautiful among women. He's attracted to her. He finds her beautiful. And so if, when we read this point and we talk about internal character as being most important, don't just throw aside that beauty then is not important. There is an importance to beauty. And let's talk about that from the Song of Songs. 
Okay, so in Song of Songs 1 verse 7, I'm going to read it. Tell me, O you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon. For why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of her companions? So the woman is speaking here again, and she's setting up a rendezvous with her uh, husband. And she as a shepherdess, and he as a shepherdess, or shepherd, <laughs> um, you have them occupying from a socioeconomic level. They're like the poorest people in the land. They're the shepherds. But even as shepherds, he responds to her, if you do not know, O most beautiful among women. So beauty is something that's not enjoyed simply by the people who have lots of money, who are very rich, who can use their wealth to enhance their beauty. Even people who are at a lower socioeconomic scale can enjoy beauty. Uh, and learning about how to do that would be another point for just a little bit. Okay, now let's keep going. It's not just the shepherds, but also in verses 9 through 11, um, continuing in the Song of Songs, I've compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Okay, that's a little weird. We'll come back to that one. But verse 10, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with chains of gold. Why is she wearing a necklace? Why does she have ornaments on her cheeks? And then verse 11, let us make you ornaments of gold with studs of silver. So she has adorned her beauty and they're making additional adornments because a guy likes to look at a pretty wife. And so what is, what is, what is the theological message here? Well, that beauty is important. It is not important in that the ordering of loves, um, um, beauty is, is not more important than internal beauty. You need to be a virtuous individual. That is most important. But adorning the body to please one's spouse is actually an act of loving service to them. And we see that in Song 1, 9 through 11. Song 1, 9 through 11 paints a very different scene from the shepherd and shepherdess. Now you have the king and the queen. So you have the richest in the land and the poorest in the land. And both of these individuals can enjoy beauty. And speaking of beauty, and that beauty can be adorned, they are creating jewelry by which adorns her beauty. Uh, so there's nothing wrong with a woman putting on makeup or to um, put on jewelry. Uh, I would contend that uh, heart desires need to be analyzed. And often the best person to help you analyze those heart desires is somebody other than yourself. Your parents, a Christian mentor, can help guide you in um, evaluating why you're wanting to adorn your beauty. Okay, now I want to go back to verse 9, because this gets back to the, the way that beauty has an effect upon us. In verse 9, we had this weird horse analogy. I have compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Now, a filly is a, is a female horse. And generally, guys, just a quick tip for you, Probably don't go uh, trying to flatter some young lady or husbands, your wives, by telling her that she's a female horse. Probably not going to go so well. But in that culture is actually a, a very, um, what, endearing compliment, one might say. And it's a description of beauty and what it does. So, um, so what's going on here? Okay, Pharaoh's chariots. What kind of a horse pulls a chariot? A workhorse or a warhorse? A strong horse is going to pull a chariot. Okay, what would be the gender 
of a strong horse. Okay, a little hippology would help us out here. It'd be the male horses. They're bigger and they're stronger. So a pharaoh's chariot is generally going to be pulled by pharaoh's stallions. Okay, now a little hippology would really help here. But if you brought a mare alongside or near pharaoh's stallions pulling his chariot, what you get is a big mess. In fact, in a battle tactic in days gone, gone past is that they would send a horse, a mare, in heat into the battlefield to make a mess of the chariots and the horses uh, of the opposing, of the enemy. Uh, so that's actually the description of what her beauty does to him in verse 9, is that it excites him. And this is something that we need to think through when, it, when we think through beauty and the effect that beauty has on a young man, particularly in a married relationship, and why adorning oneself is actually an act of love and service to one's spouse. So beauty is not important, okay? The internal ordering of the heart, that is what's most important. But at the same time, beauty is important in that God has created you and given you beauty, and it is your responsibility to, um, to uh, be a good steward of that beauty for God's glory, and especially in a married relationship, uh, to serve one's spouse. Okay, what do you guys think about that? I think you're right. <laughs> Charlie, that's my favorite response you give. Andy, what do you think? I think he's right too. I think it's provocative that you say it both doesn't matter and it does matter. And I liked the way you distinguished that because the not mattering part, you literally have Proverbs 31 saying that beauty is fleeting. So I thought that was helpful because I do think we fall off the ditch in one of two directions here where it's either it completely matters. And so you got to hit this certain level of standard of perfection or whatever or the other one where like, yeah, it doesn't really matter at all and just ignore it. So I like the way you tried to shoot that carefully. And I thought that was very helpful. Uh, I, I'm, I'm struggling to find the words to articulate what I'm going to try and say. Like, I think beauty is obviously it's beautiful. Like it's a, it's a good thing. You know, best statement of the day. Beauty is beautiful, but where it becomes a problem is kind of what we talked about in another episode, which I don't know if this will air before it or, or not, but <laughs> where being brought under its power would be a mm. problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think then the, the issue of lust, where something that is good and beautiful, beauty, the reason I want it so bad is not for its own beauty's sake, but for what it gives me. Mm -hmm. So it's a very self-gratifying lens to look at beauty. Like beauty is something that I get to spend on my own pleasure. Mm -hmm. So the consumption of beauty. Yeah. And I think that that would be where you get into danger territory, uh, like the thin ice, you know, like you're not, you're not changing what beauty is, but where beauty could be harmful mm -hmm. is then how you're how you're desiring it and employing your desires of it and things like that. Um, anyway, yeah, I don't know, just a couple of thoughts floating in my mind. Yeah, no, those are really good thoughts. And then just as a quick application or 
implication of this and this conversation, each individual has beauty and there's always somebody that's more beautiful. And, and so the principle, particularly for married couples, is to enjoy the beauty that God has given you and to be content with it. Contentment is a major uh, component of the message of the Song of Songs, to enjoy God's gift, his gift of beauty, and be content with the beauty that God has given you. So there would be an additional application of, uh, this, uh, of this study. I was just going to go back to what you said earlier. You were talking about, is there an objective standard to beauty? And I did like that you point, this is probably too much at the end of the podcast to drop, but it might be interesting to talk about objectivity sometime. I do think that postmodernism and extreme personal, like this deciding what is going on in your life, like what, like you decide what's right and wrong is sort of cast that mm-hmm. beauty is not the beholder. It was mm-hmm. interesting in apologetics we talk. We have this one uh, person's testimony we read who was an atheist, and part of why she started to question her atheism is because of beauty. Mm-hmm. So she said this. She said it's a hu- it's a universal human experience to appreciate beauty, and this leads to the consideration of whether beauty might be in fact objectively real, not solely in the eye of the beholder, and if so, whether there are other transcendent values beyond beauty like truth and goodness. To be sure, there are cultural variations in what people describe as beautiful, but these variations are minor compared to the fundamental shared experiences. Not all cultures respond in the Western romantic way to a landscape as an experience of the sublime, but it is difficult to imagine a culture where the typical response to seeing a sunset was, that's ugly, I wish the sky wouldn't turn those weird colors. Or conversely, although people may be accustomed to living in poor sanitary conditions, I can't imagine someone saying, our house will be made much more beautiful by throwing trash on the floor. And this, this idea of beauty was really a challenge to her as a subjectivist. So I just thought that was an interesting parallel. Yes. Uh, so Roger Scruton has done some study and how there's a connection between the maxim beauties in the eye of the beholder with philosophical and moral relativism. It's all relative, so you can define beauty in any way that you want. Nancy Piercy has written Saving Leonardo, in which she draws a connection between beauty, uh, objective beauty, and, um, and this moral relativism as well. And then uh, just one other uh, connection there. Oh, man. Oh, it was really important. Well, while you think about that, I'll just say, like, this is a conversation for another time. It's like, if beauty is objective, and we have all these different forms of art, here's a future conversation. How do I know if my tastes are good tastes? Right, that's where I was going with it. Oh, really? Yeah, in the quote... That's that's great. In the quote that he had there, (laughs) the author made a distinction between beauty and taste. Okay, so tastes can be subjective whereas beauty refers to overarching principles that transcend cultures. So Roger Scruton has a section in there distinguishing beauty, uh, objective beauty from subjective tastes, and that is another element to uh, this conversation. What's interesting is it's like an art form like music can easily transcend language barriers, but written forms of art cannot. So like something that we 
as an English reader or speaker think is a beautiful poem would not be a beautiful poem to someone who can't read it. Hmm. Um, but the ideas that are being exalted would be considered good and true and beautiful regardless of language. Mm -hmm. But so what does it say about me if there's something that everybody else thinks is a classic work and I don't like it? Like it, like does it, you know, like what, what does that reveal something about my character? So maybe your tastes are a little bit off. Yeah. And I just think that's an interesting conversation to have, but Good unless stuff. the myth of progress is true. And then that means everyone before you just wasn't as progressed as you. Oh. Yes. <laughs> Horrendous. Sorry. That is exactly where I was going with that. <laughs> I am the most progressed man. No, that's definitely not true. The Ur-Man. Whatever we want to call it. Isn't it the Ur-Man or whatever in Abolition or Space uh, Trilogy? The Unman. 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 Ur-Man. Sorry, anyway. Let's not get talking about the Space Trilogy again. That's a dangerous thing. Oh, come on. Are we done? I'm We're done. done. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.